Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Her Health, the show that reprioritizes your to-do list and puts your health first. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, AVP of Social and Influencer Strategy for Providence. This season, we're talking about why midlife health matters. Beginning at the age of 35, women face increased risk for many conditions, so it's important to know what to watch for and to get that recommended screening. Our goal is to help women make informed health choices for themselves. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Diana Curry, an OBGYN and women's health specialist based in Olympia, Washington. We're talking about hormones, menopause, and libido, and how those issues impact most women. Remember, everyone, if you have questions for our expert, please share them with us on social media. You can be found on Facebook and Twitter at Providence and under Providence Health System on Instagram. Use the hashtag HerHealth, that's hashtag HerHealth, and we'll be on the lookout for your questions. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started by welcoming our guest today. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Curry. Well, Dr. Curry, thanks for coming back to our show. We really appreciate it. We had such fascinating learnings from the last one. Um, today, we're going to talk again about women's health as we get into those 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, but we're going to talk more about menopause as it relates to libido and, and, and vaginal health. So um, talk me a little bit about um, how a woman's sex drive changes during menopause. Right. So that's a really common complaint. Uh, women will come in and say, you know, I have no interest, no libido. It's a problem. My partner thinks I don't like them anymore. You know, so it is a really important topic to talk about. And I hope that all of my patients feel comfortable asking me about it. I think that a lot of women are embarrassed to ask about it with their doctors, um, but we need to address it. Um, if for no other reason than if your sex life isn't good, it becomes the elephant in the room for the relationship. And we all know relationships are really important as we get older to maintain good relationships. Uh, so sex drive and libido, um, it does change as you get older. Uh, clearly there is more sort of desire and more, uh, even studies have shown more sexual fantasies. Women think about sex more in their 20s and 30s, and it begins to decrease sort of the late 30s and into the 40s, typically. Not for everybody, but for many women, that is the case. Um, the studies show that if women are beginning to engage in a sexual activity, their partners, you know, doing things and getting them in the mood, that they are equally as responsive in their you know, later 30s and 40s, but they just might not initiate it as much because they're just, it's not on the top of their mind as much. Um, so that's kind of the main difference that we see. After menopause, go ahead, yeah. Oh no, no, please continue. Is it, after menopause, things do change again. So not only are women maybe not thinking about it as much, but when they do start to engage in sexual activities, they may feel that they're less responsive or they may begin to shy away from sex because it begins to become uncomfortable. And um, that's something that we definitely want to address. So vaginal discomfort or pain with intercourse is a problem that begins uh, for many women as they are in the menopause um, years. So the early 50s, mid 50s. And the reason for that for many women is that with lower estrogen levels, the vaginal skin becomes less elastic. 
So the vagina is a pretty amazing organ. I mean, it can stretch to accommodate delivery of a 10 pound baby if needed, and then go back to how it was before essentially. Um, but that stretchiness, that elasticity of the vagina is really due to the estrogen effects on the vagina. So as you go into menopause and you have lower estrogen levels, over time, the vagina becomes less stretchy, less elastic. And um, that translates to discomfort during sex. Um, and so the um, treatment for that is vaginal estrogen cream. Um, it's like a fancy topical moisturizer. You know, think of it like fancy facial moisturizer, but it's got a little estrogen in it. You put it in the vagina a couple times a week. And over time, that maintains the elasticity of the vagina so that sex is no longer uncomfortable or it prevents it ever from becoming uncomfortable. And, you know, the studies show that up over 50% of women have discomfort and uh, vaginal dryness. Uh, as they get older. So I think everybody should be on estrogen cream. It's like La Mer for our faces, but only for our vajayjays. Yep. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. Well, um, you talked about kind of the elasticity and the stretchy. One of the questions we got was, is it a myth or not? But if my vagina is is getting bigger after menopause, and it sounds to me like maybe not so much, but no, but that might relate to the pelvic floor. So um, the pelvic floor is a complex and um, very important part of a female body. And a lot of people don't really think about it, but the bottom of our body, the pelvic floor, it's like the bottom of the bowl. It holds up our entire body, our whole life. So all of the weight of our body is sitting there on top of that, that pelvic floor. And the muscles and ligaments of the pelvic floor do get um, a workout, right? With childbirth and with age and gravity. And if we gain weight, you know, all of that is stressing the pelvic floor. And so you, a woman can have some, what we call pelvic floor prolapse or pelvic organ prolapse. Um, it feels like things are sagging and the opening to the vagina kind of gets a little bit quote bigger and they feel their bladder or their rectum kind of dropping down through that area. Those are real changes that can occur. Um, a little bit different um, cause than the, the estrogen thing. Although doing, you know, using your vaginal estrogen and doing your Kegel exercises, your pelvic floor exercises will, will help uh, reduce the kind of wear and tear and aging effects on the pelvic floor. But yeah, that is something that women um, do experience and needs to be addressed as well. Well, you just talked about Kegels and we had a lot of questions about that, you know, for example, how often do they really work? What's an actual Kegel versus what I think it might be? Can you give us a little bit of an overview there? Absolutely. So um, the Kegel muscle is the little tiny muscle that's down deep in the pelvic floor. And you can find it if you're sitting on the toilet and peeing and you pretend like somebody opened the door and walked into the bathroom and you had to like stop the stream. Um, that little muscle contraction that stops the urine stream is what we consider or call the Kegel muscle. It is not the found in the butt or the stomach. So you should be able to do a Kegel contraction, a Kegel muscle contraction exercise without anybody knowing it. You can be standing in line at the market and doing your Kegels and no one will know because you're not moving your stomach or your butt or any other parts of your body. Um, 
and and identifying that muscle and kind of squeezing it and pulling it up and getting it you know nice and healthy and strong is really important for maintaining good pelvic floor function preventing um, or you know making better urinary incontinence to some degree reducing the risk of pelvic organ prolapse um, so it's very important it's like the you know, the core abdominal muscles help prevent back pain. Well, a good strong Kegel muscle will help prevent a lot of complications of getting older with respect to the bladder and the vagina. Maybe we can, can we do our Kegels at the same time we do our squats? Can we get a two for one in there? Um, well, when you do your squat, you're actually increasing your intra-abdominal um, pressure. So mm -hmm. actually that's a really good point to make which is that intense sort of oomph, you know, pressure that like we call it the Valsalva maneuver that you do when you go to lift something heavy or squat down or, you know, pick up a big box of groceries from Costco or something, that straining that you do, or for example, when you cough or sneeze also, it strains the pelvic floor and it pushes down on it. So, you know, let people that don't have a delicate pelvic floor do the heavy lifting in the world, um, you know, Actually, it was kind of a design flaw when we went from all fours to upright back, you know, 100,000 years ago in evolution. The pelvic floor of females, you know, really wasn't necessarily designed to, to work and function perfectly for 90 years. You know, back in the day, everyone died when they were, you know, 45 or 50 years old. So if you want to keep your pelvic floor healthy for, you know, 95 years, you got to try to avoid a lot of really heavy lifting and strain on that pelvic floor. Well. Wow. I wasn't kidding when I said we had a lot of questions about Kegels. One of them that we got was, will my partner know if I'm doing them? Does it improve my sex uh, life? Well, if you're in the middle of intercourse and there happens to be a penis in that vagina and the vagina squeezes, the penis will feel it. All right. So it is it is a two for one on one aspect, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked a little bit about libido. Um, and you talked a little bit about some people maybe aren't having as much of a libido and that may or may not be hormone related, but we had a couple of people say my sex drive increased after menopause. Is that normal or is that just a unique experience? No, that can happen. Um, I do hear that from women. And for some women, it's because they no longer have to worry about being on contraception or worrying about getting pregnant, you know? So um, women who had problems with their periods, heavy, painful periods, you know, once you stop having that, things feel better in general. Um, women that had a lot of PMS problems or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD, uh, you know, they're no longer having that kind of problem. And so it sort of frees them up. They feel less burdened with the whole female, you know, periods, gynecology problems. And so they actually do have a better sex life or enjoy sex more because they're not worried about bleeding and things like that. So it can happen. That's a normal thing that we see as well. Okay, so it's not all bad. Ladies, we're not birthing babies. We're not having periods. We may have more enjoyable sex. It's, it's let's, let's start looking at the bright side. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we do know the negative, though, of you were talking about the pelvic floor and you were talking about kind of bladder health. There is some some issues people have with the urinary frequency and, and incontinence. And I know that you, you've touched on it. But if I'm a woman and I experience that, is that something I should point out to my physician pretty quickly? Yes. So urinary incontinence is a problem that tends to start as women get older after childbirth in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and it can get worse as time goes on. So it's important to talk to your doctor about it, find out what you can do to make it a little bit less of a problem. 
Um, it may not be able to be completely cured, but the goal is to improve the symptoms um, because what we know is that women who have problems with incontinence tend to avoid going out for long periods of time into places where they might not have access to a bathroom right away because they feel like they have to constantly go to the bathroom to empty their bladder so that they don't leak. Um, and they get into a vicious circle of frequency of urination and then they have more urge to go more often. It's sort of an a ongoing problem that escalates over time. So talking about it with your doctor, you know, being aware of it, figuring out what you can do to help um, your symptoms improve is very important for, you know, lifelong good pelvic floor health, so to speak. Um, we don't want to have all the negative impacts of urinary incontinence um, that can happen to older women happen. You know, if we can avoid it, we should avoid it. We did get a couple of questions from people that said, am I, is it a big issue if I piddle just a little bit when I sneeze or laugh? I like the, the word piddle, by the way. <laughs> that's, um, that's actually a pretty common problem. So stress urinary incontinence, it means the stress on the pelvic floor, which when you cough or laugh or sneeze or lift something, it kind of pushes uh, down on the pelvic floor and that causes people to leak a little bit. Again, do those Kegels, get that pelvic floor strong. And um, ultimately, if it's becoming a big problem and somebody's having to wear pads all the time and they're changing their pads four times a day because they're leaking every time they, you know, giggle, that's something that might need to be fixed. Um, a lot of the treatments for that are surgical, but it's worth thinking about and discussing. And, you know, it's not a life and death issue. So, you know, urinary incontinence never killed anybody. But uh, if you're a woman that suffers with that, it's a big factor in quality of life. And quality of life is absolutely something we want to focus on and make as, you know, as good as possible. Well, especially now, I mean, you were talking about we used to only live 40, 50 years. Now, if our goal is to live 90, 95 years, quality of life matters, especially if we start this process at 40 or 50. Yes. Yeah. Well, we did uh, get a question about bladder infections. Are they more common after menopause? Yes, they can be. And again, that stretchiness or elasticity of the vaginal skin uh, also relates to the lower urinary tract. So the urethra and the lower part of the bladder are very estrogen sensitive. So with lack of estrogen, those tissues begin to get thinner and drier and less able to resist bacteria. So some women do have more problems with bladder infections as they get older. And Often a little bit of local vaginal estrogen treatment can help reduce the risk of urinary tract infections. Oh, good to know, good to know. Oh, I'd wonder too if like a lot of women use say condoms as a form of contraceptive and if they stopped using condoms, I would think that maybe would increase bladder infections or something, I mean, different bacteria. I don't know, am I, am I crazy? I'm not a doctor. <laughs> um, I don't know that there's any good study data to show that <laughs> using or not using condoms affects bladder infections, but we absolutely tell women who are prone to bladder infections to get up and pee after they have sex because the urethra, which is the opening to the bladder and the vagina are super close together. So during sex, there is kind of, you know, bacteria that gets all around and um, sometimes it can get push a little bacteria up into the urethra. So by peeing afterwards, you're kind of hopefully washing out that urethra and clearing out some of that bacteria and preventing the, what we call post-coital um, bladder infection, which means after sex bladder infection. Um, which can be a problem for lots of women. Well, you were talking about cleaning. I know we had questions coming in about douching and is douching something we should be doing? I mean, 
I don't really know anything about it. Yeah, generally not. Um, douching actually can uh, change the normal uh, good bacteria that live in the vagina. So there are bacteria that live in our bodies, you know, the microbiome in our gut, the bacteria on our skins, you know, that are good and protect us and keep things in balance. So douching often will throw the vaginal uh, bacteria sort of out of balance. So we don't typically recommend it. The vagina is like a self-cleaning oven. Just let it do its thing. Um, you know, vaginal discharge and the mucousy kind of discharge that we get is often part of that kind of cleansing process. Doesn't mean that all discharge is normal, but some is. That that may actually be my quote of the day. My vagina is a self-cleaning oven. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. And we're going to take more of your questions from social media. Figure it out, figure it out You're better now 
we're back on Her Health, and today I'm joined by Dr. Diana Curry, and we've been talking about hormones, menopause, and libido, and pelvic floor, and all the fun stuff we want to talk about as women in our 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, Dr. Curry, we had so many questions coming in, and, and I know you're an expert, and you have so many years of experience in this space, but what we got from a lot of people was, who do I know, like, who do I go to? How do I know if I'm going to the right doctor? Do I go to a gynecologist? Do I go to primary care? Do I need a specialist if I think that I'm going through menopause, or I think I might have hormone issues? That's a really good question. So hormone replacement therapy or hormone issues in menopause is a little bit of a specialized area for uh, doctors. Uh, there are many doctors who don't know very much about it. Um, so it's worth having the conversation with your primary care doctor to see what they say. They might have an interest in it and have some expertise in the area, but they might not. Um, most gynecologists have some interest and uh, some expertise in hormones, but not all. So to be honest, hormone replacement therapy was something that was very uh, big sort of back in the 90s um, and the early 2000s. And then after that, things changed. There was a big study that came out that showed uh, that maybe giving hormone replacement therapy in menopause was not so good for a lot of women, particularly older women in their 60s. Um, and so the gynecologists that were trained in their residency and everything, medical school in the sort of 2000s might not have as much interest or expertise or background in hormones. So it's always worth asking your doctor, is this something that, you know, you feel comfortable discussing with me or, you know, can you refer me to somebody else? Um, and most gynecologists that have an interest in it, you know, self-identify that way and will say so, you know, so when somebody needs to talk about hormones, I will, you know, often see them for sort of that one-time consult, spend 30 minutes, 45 minutes, you know, going through their whole history and assessing whether or not they're a good candidate for hormones, whether hormones are the right thing for them, given their health goals and their current symptoms and what they're trying to achieve, you know, in terms of their health goals and treating of symptoms. So it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all situation, and not all doctors are the same. I think I think what you're saying is, is important too, because I think we as women are the people who know our body best, right? And so even if it is your primary care physician, we really should be vocal about changes that we're noticing. I know that I, I started having these really horrible periods and cramping that I had never had, and I just assumed that that was normal. Um, and so I was 18, 24 months in before I said something randomly to the, my doctor while I was having a different thing. And she was like, well, that's not normal, honey. Like that's that's not something you should be having. And how do we know when we should tell our doctor something? Like, is there is there a sign or should we just tell the doctor kind of everything as it relates to our vaginal health? Well, I think that it's important when you go in for your regular visits and stuff to talk about the periods and sort of where you're at in, in that aspect of your life. I think that a lot of primary care doctors do focus on, you know, your blood pressure and, you know, your blood sugar and other things. But um, a woman's menstrual history and what's going on with her menstrual status, so to speak, is a very important key into her overall health and well-being. And um, it is very important to ask about. So if your doctor doesn't ask about it, volunteer the information. You know, this is what's going on. I'm having, you know, 10 days of horrible, heavy bleeding and cramping for at least five or six of those days. I have to miss work one or two days a month. Um, you know, even though somebody might be living with it and they're tough and they just deal with it, that isn't normal and it can be addressed and made better. I think that women tend to 
women and doctors, all of us tend to blow off hormones and kind of blow off these things as being, oh, it's just female complaints. And that's a very old fashioned sort of patriarchal view of things. Um, you know, women and their hormones and their periods are really important. And so while it may not kill you again, you know, having horrible periods may not kill you. If you're miserable for a week every month, the, you know, that might not kill you, but you might want to kill somebody else. <laughs> that can make somebody feel pretty darn terrible and really interrupt their life and their healthy relationships with their family, their partner, their kids. So it's really important to address that. Oh, it can impact your work. I had days where like I couldn't get out of bed and I'm very blessed and fortunate that I could work from bed with my laptop, but there was no way if I'd been a nurse or something, I would have been able to work a floor. There's just no way. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you a little bit about the emotional impact of menopause, because I think there's a lot of women out there who don't know that it's going to affect them the way it does when you think about the fact that I will no longer be able to have a baby. Right. Like we I joke, right. Hey, there's the benefit. No more birthing babies. But to a lot of women, that's very emotional. How do you handle that with your patients? That's a really good question. Um, so I think a lot of women do grieve. You know, there it's a loss. It's a loss like any other loss. And it's really important to acknowledge that and realize that there is a certain amount of sadness and grief um, at the loss of fertility. Um, and, you know, you can't change that, right? It's part of life. It's part of growing older. And, you know, uh, growing older is definitely uh, the better option than not growing older because, <laughs> right? So, um, but it is important to acknowledge that and just say, yeah, that's normal. That's common. And, you know, even five years or 10 years after menopause, women will still sometimes have moments of, of sadness, feeling like they miss that time when they, you know, could have a baby or when they, you know, could contemplate having a baby. And uh, yeah, that's a real, real uh, emotion that has to be acknowledged and, and talked about and worked through. Well, it's interesting. I um, never planned to have children and I don't have children. And I went into my ablation and all that perfectly fine. And it really wasn't until I was home for like two days that I went, oh, you know, the choice is no longer mine anymore. It had always been my choice. And suddenly it wasn't. And I didn't, it didn't change the fact that I still didn't want to have children, but just the fact that it wasn't my choice was really hard for me to come to terms with. And I can imagine that women probably do struggle with that. Yeah. Yeah. On the flip side of that though, my doctor had said to me, you haven't had children, you aren't menopausal and you're only 40, you know what? I'm just going to leave it in the forties. We don't need to be real specific, but um, he's like, you know, you could still have children. And it seems to me that my friends are even having children at 47, 48, 49, like are women having babies longer? And is that, is that because of the way medical it, like structure has changed or is the way our bodies have changed? Is it normal? Is it healthy? Well, that's actually a good question. So most women cannot have babies when they're 47 years old, say, or 48. Um, fertility drastically goes down after about age 41, 42. There are women who have had children before who are sort of have proven fertility who do get pregnant in their early 40s, 43, 44, 45. That's exceedingly rare, and the older you get, the rarer it gets. Um, there was a period of time back in sort of the 90s and 2000s when in vitro fertilization was really coming out into its own, and there were a lot of high-profile people, movie stars and things that were having babies when they were 47, 48 years old. And what a lot of people didn't realize is that they were using in vitro fertilization and other very advanced reproductive technologies to get pregnant at that age. 
Um, and nobody really talks about that. They just say, oh, look, I'm pregnant. Isn't that great? Um, so the, uh, the thing to realize is that spontaneous pregnancy is very rare at that age. And when women do get pregnant at that age spontaneously, it usually ends in a miscarriage. So the rates of miscarriage are very high in the late 40s. Um, so no, our bodies aren't changing. We evolved to have peak fertility in our, you know, early um, early 20s, you know, late teens, early 20s. After about age 35, fertility drops a little and then by 45, it's pretty rare. We, um, we, we did an interview with one of our doctors down in California and I was telling him, well, you know, I'm getting to that age or whatever. And he said, well, you have to think about your ovaries almost like a car. He's like, they're still working, but they're really kind of sputtering. And that's become one of my new things is my ovaries are sputtering. I just think it's fascinating the way he, he explained it because it actually made sense to me. Yep, they're still pushing them out, but they're not necessarily the best ones you might want. Yeah, yeah. Like everything else in our body, the eggs and the ovaries age. And so the ones that are, you know, still left when you're 42 are not the quote good ones anymore, right. um, and which is why birth defects and uh, miscarriage and stuff is higher in the 40s. Um, yeah, yeah, I always joke, my, my eggs are past their sell-by date. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, I love it. I um, My family is, is crazy because my grandma actually thought she was going through menopause, went to the doctor, she was 50 or 51, and she was pregnant with twins. And so my, my aunts are like three years older than me, which is crazy. So we all, all of our family gets a little nervous if we haven't hit menopause by a certain age, so. Um, well, we still have quite a few questions coming in, and one of them you kind of touched on, but we got one from Twitter that says, sex is becoming unbearable due to the pain and vaginal dryness. Can I use KY jelly? And you talked about kind of the, the almost the face cream for our vaginas, but is KY jelly an option or are those two very different things? Yeah, so lubricants, vaginal lubricants for sex are very important as women get older. So there's either water-based um, lubricants such as KY. There's also silicone-based um, lubricants that are a little bit more slippery. Um, there's things like slippery stuff and Uber Lube. There's a ton of lubricants out there. They're in the aisle of the drugstore, you know. So lubricants are important for intercourse itself. The vaginal estrogen cream is not actually a lubricant, and it's used on evenings when somebody's not anticipating having sex. So it goes into the vagina and you absorb it into the skin of the vagina, um, and it slowly over time changes the way that skin grows so that it's more elastic. So you want to use both. You know, often women need both. They need a couple days a week of their vaginal estrogen cream to keep that skin more elastic, and then they absolutely need lubricants at the time that they are having sex. Um, and those lubricants are not hormonal. Let's talk about this vaginal reconstruction craze that everybody's going through. Is oh, yeah. that, I mean, I hear so much about that and it seems a little crazy to me, but why are women doing it? Is it safe? Does it work? Well, there's two different kinds of vaginal reconstruction. There's sort of the pelvic floor, uh, tightening everything up, you know, that relates to what we talked about um, earlier about pelvic floor sort of sagging and dropping and getting weaker. Um, so there's surgeries to sort of strengthen the pelvic floor and pull everything up and tighten everything to treat urinary incontinence and bladders dropping and things like that. And then there's vaginal rejuvenation, which is done with lasers. Um, it's considered sort of like a cosmetic procedure almost. A lot of you know places that do Botox do vaginal rejuvenation. Um, and there's beginning to be more and more study data to show that it's safe and effective at improving the elasticity of the vagina. Um, it's not yet something that's in mainstream medicine. It's not something that 
um, is necessarily covered by insurance, for example, because it hasn't really been completely proven. Um, but yeah, there, there are laser treatments that can help improve elasticity according to the, the companies that market the devices. So it's, it's a facelift for your JJ. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's going to be considered elective, my friends. <laughs> well, you, you also touched on this, but we had several people asking about naturopathic or natural ways to get through menopause symptoms. And I know you talked some about supplements and, and the creams, but what are there? And actually you talked about like cognitive therapy. What would you tell people if they were looking to find natural and effective ways to kind of alleviate their symptoms? Where would you send them or what would you tell them? Um, certainly to uh, talk to their doctor about it, who hopefully has some uh, knowledge about this, you know, naturopaths, OBGYNs um, might know about all these things. Acupuncture herbs are all helpful. Um, I think that an important discussion is um, to discuss like bioidentical hormones, um, because there's a lot of uh, things out there on the internet about bioidentical and compounded hormones. Those aren't the same. Uh, bioidentical hormones can be regular, you know, pills and patches and capsules and things that are FDA approved. Um, and you can use low dose bioidentical hormones to safely sort of help people get through the roughest, you know, year or two of menopause changes with their hot flashes and whatnot. Um, you also can, you know, use paste breathing and therapy and yoga and other things as well. And for most women, I think a combination of therapies is a good approach. Well, we're nearing the end of our journey here and, and we have maybe about a minute, minute and a half left. And I really would love to kind of give you the floor. Is there anything, not the pelvic floor, but the floor here, <laughs> is there anything that you would want to tell women as they talk about, you know, their, their vaginal health as they get into this kind of, you know, forties and fifties, what, what is it you would want them to know? I want women to be able to comfortably talk about it. We shouldn't feel ashamed or embarrassed bring it up. You know, if your periods are bothering you, if your pelvic floor is bothering you, your bladder, your sex life, you know, talk about it, find out if there is anything that can be done about it. Even if there isn't any magic bullet to solve all the problems and cure all the ills, at least discussing it with your doctor and kind of realizing that you're not alone is very important and goes a long ways towards alleviating some of the anxiety that women feel as they go through life and they have all these changes happening in their body. Um, yeah, it's just, we have to be educated and we have to make decisions in a shared fashion, you know, with our doctors about what's best for us. And it isn't the same. Every woman's unique. Every woman's journey is unique. Well, I have to say you're amazing. And I really hope you'll come back and do this with us again, because we still have so many questions. Um, but I do really want to thank you, Dr. Curry, for joining us today and everyone for listening and sending in these great questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence. Make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Facebook and Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit Providence.org. Thank you and take care of your health. Thank you, Mary. Ask me how